One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. to episode 54 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And we hit number one this week. I can't, I never thought we'd get there. Finally number one. It's sounding pretty negative. <laughs> no, it's in, number one is a massive deal. We got to number two, I think, in our first week that we launched. But number one, we were ahead of Desert Island Disc, we were ahead of The Arches, we were ahead of Dr. Buckles. <laughs> Your favourite. I was quite tempted to change all social media bios, just in brackets, was once number one. Well, how do we, because I know how it works with the bestseller list, is that you just have to like get in there once. And, and then, then you're then a forever. Sunday Times bestseller. Yeah, but what, You are a Sunday Times bestseller. Thanks, babe. But what's the nomenclature with iTunes? iTunes topper. How do you say it? Charlie's sort of nodding. How, how do we, what should we say? What do we define ourselves The iTunes as? topping podcast. That's too boasty, I think. You need a more dispassionate Hit way single. of... Hit the hit, the hit number hit one. The number one podcast, that's what we can Well, say. I think after this discussion, we'll be number 301. <laughs> <laughs> it's Mental Health Awareness Week this week. Shout out to Jodie Hill, the lead solicitor, who is campaigning to make it compulsory for employers to employ a mental health first aider like they would a physical first aider. Isn't that a great that's idea? That's an amazing Every idea. company should have a mental mm. first aider. Mm. And of course, it's the week that Chrissy Teigen got involved in the UK local elections. Well, that's a bit misleading. That's not what Did she you see said. the tweet I tagged yeah, you in? Yeah, it's so funny. She was like, lol, secret passion, local election. <laughs> anyway, Dolly, what have you been enjoying this week? Uh, I've mainly been crying, like, constantly this week due to, not personal reasons, due to the things that I have been watching and listening to. The first thing that made me weep was, oh God, Panda, you'd love it. That soul music show that I... Um, wax Lyrical on Wax Lyrical week. about last week, the Radio 4 show that kind of dissects the history and the meaning of um, uh, certain songs. I listened to the episode of the Beach Boys, God Only Knows. And instead of going into kind of the history of how it was made, instead they talked to people, particularly to couples for whom that song has meant a great deal to them. And it's just so moving. I mean, that song is incredibly moving anyway. Um, but it was, do you know which song I'm talking about, Pandora? God, know, yeah, this is the woman, listeners, who nearly had I'm a Barbie Girl in a Barbie World as her first dance song, so I it's just wanted in, to check that. Because I thought it would be really funny if we sung to each other. It's in um, Love Actually. It is, yeah. And it's I find it really sad, because Liam Neeson is talking about his darling girl. Mm. It's a very moving song, and there's they kind of take semantically what the lyrics mean, so they talk to, this sounds insane, but they talk to a couple who are both work in the church I think they're missionaries who got married and how that song means so much to them because of the reference of God only knows what you mean to me and then they also interview a woman for whom that was her wedding song with her husband and her husband just dropped dead one day and she talks about the significance that those lyrics take on now that she is without him oh even talk about it Makes me like it was, You're like me most weeks right now I know it's, <laughs> maybe I've caught your hormones um, it's very very beautiful episode so uh, I was sobbing at that I went to go see I Feel Pretty and so how have I not got a voice note about this oh, I feel because like you're going was... off me oh no darling it's not that it's I was like I was trig- I just found new people to voice note darling <laughs> no I was like triggered I was like full on triggered so having uh, for those who might have missed that episode we Dolly and I discussed two pieces of journalism that was sort of hooked on Amy Schumer's film, I Feel Pretty, mm. but were very, a very interesting read 
even if you hadn't seen the film, which mm. neither of us had. I'm now wishing I'd seen it as well. And then we discussed the journalism. Does it make you see what we discussed in a different light? Is it as you thought? Well, that's the reason Better I watched worse? it is I thought we probably can't sit and sort of slag it off before we watched it. So the pieces were talking about how um, it's two-dimensional. The pieces were also talking about how she pretends that we live in a world where looks don't matter, where, of course, for women, looks are They are a incredibly important. That's not what I found most disturbing in it. What I found really difficult, it, I went on my own on Monday night and I sat in front of a load of like hysterical teenage girls who were laughing at everything. And what I hadn't expected is the character of Amy Schumer is really um, self-loathing about how she looks. She absolutely hates herself. Like in the first montage, there's this scene where she comes home from having drinks with her friends and she takes her clothes off and just like stares at her body in the mirror and then like looks at herself in the eyes and just looks like she's going to burst into tears. And then she, all she does is she just obsesses over the way she looks and she wishes that she was beautiful. Then she has an accident in a soul cycle class and then suddenly she sees herself with this enormous amount of beauty. And that's the shallow hell parallel. Yeah, she becomes obsessed with how beautiful she is and the currency she now holds in the world and then it disappears at the end again and she is momentarily distraught because she thinks all her power has gone and she thinks she's like not worthy of love. Literally, I just cried throughout the whole thing. because that's a really interesting premise. It's, the thing is, it's really not, actually. It's a really boring film, and it's not funny, and it's a waste of Amy Schumer's talent. But what I had, hadn't expected is being confronted with this character that was so obsessed with the way that she looked and so self-loathing. I saw myself, and I saw nearly every woman that I've that I know so playing devil's advocate surely that makes it a meaningful film rather than a waste of her talent because you were yeah. you it, provo- it provoked promoted instilled help mm. a strong response in you a visceral reaction I think it just made me feel like I, ju- I ran out of this cinema because I'd been like no one else was did you feel st- dirty being around that I just felt enormously sad. I just cried throughout the whole thing because I just kept seeing myself in this person. Like She's meant to be this cartoon figure and yet it just made me realise what a mess that so many women are in. Maybe like, that's her intention. Maybe her intention maybe. is I to don't, make... Maybe. I, th- I think there was like, like there's one bit where she thinks she's lost all her looks and she can't bear to see her boyfriend because she thinks that like he won't love her anymore. And I just thought of so many... What a metaphor that is for so many women. Like I remember being 23 and dating this musician guy for months. And then he lived in East London and I was working in office East London and I wasn't wearing makeup one day, having a cigarette outside. And he walked down the road and I literally like ran. I literally ran and hid behind a bin because I just thought I wouldn't be lovable without makeup on. I, it's, I know this just sounds like trite stuff, but this no, is really in the bedrock it, of what, I don't of what women sounds, face every day. I don't think it sounds trite at all. This is what I'm saying I think is interesting is that you are denouncing the film as a waste mm. of her talent and, and you've said it's incredibly boring but you are also actually mm. lauding it as one of the most most Powerful painfully truthful yeah. things. Yeah. Um, I don't know, I feel conflicted about it. I think what I came out of at the end is I like rushed out with the credits because I didn't want to see everyone to see that I'd been crying and I just stood outside in the Camden and I felt like, I honestly thought I was going to have a panic attack at the end of it and I just stood and I was like... That was a really boring film. That was a really boring character. Living life like this is really boring. I don't want to live life like this anymore. Like, that's what it made me feel. Rather than like, oh, isn't it amazing that like women should just have confidence? That's not what it made me feel. It just made me feel like I don't want to watch films like this. I don't want to live like that. That's what I felt. You should watch it. That's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, I suppose you're right. I'd be interested to know what you think if you get I'd a love to see, to see it. it. It's very easy to get to the cinema at the moment. <laughs> Cinemas are very baby friendly, apparently. Definitely worth spending £50 on Childminder for to see <laughs> I Feel Pretty. Um, no, I would, I would love to see that. And I'm really interested. And I'm really interested by you talking about it. And hopefully everyone at home will be so that we can be number one again. <laughs> I'd actually really like to hear if people had a similar or a different reaction because uh, I don't know that many people who've gone to see it, so please do email us or tweet us and, and tell us what you thought. I also listened to Abby Morgan's Desert Island Discs. Abby Morgan is an amazing screenwriter. She wrote Shame, The Iron Lady, Suffragette. She's phenomenally talented, Abby Morgan, and it was a really good episode. I think it's one of those episodes where I, I certainly have been waiting for Abby Morgan to do Desert Island Discs. She talks about her writing process. She talks about balancing having children and being absorbed in these worlds that she creates. Um, She talks about how she's always been someone who wants to be right in the middle of drama. 
she's also ruthlessly, ruthlessly honest. I don't think I've listened to someone be so honest, particularly on the subject of feminism. She said she didn't used to call herself a feminist. And she talks about, and then she went on to make Suffragette, obviously. She talks about how much she kind of cringes out about that. And then, amazingly, she talks about Harvey Weinstein. I know, because it got written up in newspapers. I'm not surprised. It was the most incredible... She said she'd heard he was a rapist, hadn't yeah. she? she was like... She didn't do anything uh, about yeah. it, and she wishes she had. No yeah. one else has actually said, no one has I heard said he's that. a rapist. Because here's They've the thing... They've all gone, oh, I heard you like touching bottoms, but yeah. I didn't know anything. Because here's the thing, when I listen to Abby Morgan, this is what I've realised, where we are that's an issue. I think we've become so obsessed with morality now. It's almost like we've gone back to a Victorian age. We're Absolutely. so obsessed with, like, the worst thing that can happen is being called a bad person. That it means that ev- everything, with everything that we say every way that we vote every question we ask it's about showing how good it's about showing what a good fucking person we are so that's why actually that doesn't take us anywhere in terms of ending these injustices because what Abby Morgan is saying in this interview is I was told he was a rapist and yet isn't it interesting that I still worked with him and I didn't do anything about it so actually to have these moments where because we've all done that we've all stayed quiet on a tube carriage when someone was having abuse held at them or didn't stick up for someone in the workplace when they were being bullied i'm like that's most people let's just start on a default that we're all at heart good people who can sometimes make mistakes like that and if you look at those mistakes and go that's interesting why did i do that was it because i was scared of my power being taken away was it was because i was scared of of the power they had over me because only when you answer those questions can you learn a lesson and make sure you don't do it next time so for me it was just the most powerful thing to have a woman fess up and be like yeah i knew this stuff but for a moment me and my work was more important so i applaud abby morgan for being honest about that and i'd like to insert an extract here i had heard that he'd been called a rapist And I look back now and think, why did I never challenge that? And there was always that rumour around him. You know, the main thing about Harvey was he was almost a parody of power. I think we put him in that kind of frothy Hollywood uh, kind of bubble. But in a way, I don't want to excuse my behaviour because I I think I've shocked myself, actually, in terms of the way you don't listen to yourself and go, this doesn't feel entirely right. What have you been crying at this week, Pandora? No tears, actually, for once, but from one um, woman I admire to another, Curtis Sittenfeld, one of my favourite authors, has a new collection of short stories out called You Think It, I'll Say It, which is such a good title. And it's based on um, a game that the... That two of the characters play in a short story um, called The World Has Many Butterflies. And it's just a really... It's so of this moment, actually. There's a story called Gender Studies, which a lot of people um, have found really interesting, between a gender studies professor and a young Uber driver who she gets off with and what that interlude says about um, her as a woman and him as a man and her as a gender studies professor and 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 him as the the supplier of a service that she enjoyed not sex driving her um before they moved into a you know more personal level and um they are snappy and easy to read and say a lot about the modern consciousness and the modern american consciousness and it's exactly why i love her writing it's why i loved um the American Wife, it's why I loved Prep, which is about a girl at a really privileged boarding school in America. I wrote my dissertation on Prep. I think mm. it's kind of the female version of um, Catcher in the Rye. Mm. It's like the ultimate buildings roman, kind of like Briony and Atonement. I could talk about Curtis Sittenfeld all day long and what I think she says about men and women in modern life. Um, but it's really brilliant. So if you like short stories, and I love them, then you will thoroughly enjoy also been enjoying Patrick Melrose starring Benedict Cumberbatch which is coming out on Sky Atlantic on Sunday which is a series of I mean biographical books loosely written by Edward St Auburn about a um, young aristocratic boy who uh, was abused by his father then became a heroin addict I mean they they pack a punch I enjoyed an interview this week Dolly that you would love with Sean Penn by Emma Brox for The Guardian It's hooked on his first ever novel, Bob Honey, Who Just Do Stuff. 
And it's such a funny, she is such a funny, incisive interviewer, Emma. I just want to read you a tiny bit of it, it just made me laugh. The 57-year-old greets me affably to my surprise. While Penn may be long admired for his acting, he's denigrated for almost everything else. He's known to be pugnacious, short-tempered, long-winded, a man who yells at photographers and smokes on TV. And now he has written a lunatic novel. It's the most fun I've ever had professionally, he croaks and leans back in his chair. The novel, which follows the adventure of its eponymous hero as he goes around selling septic tanks and murdering old people, is a satire of American consumer culture and the cult of image, and for weeks its successes have been gleefully documented. Penn writes as if every word has been put through a thesaurus. For face, read dermal mask. For quiet, lingering symphony of silence. <laughs> A man with good hearing has extraordinary auditory augmentation efficiency. So it goes on until we reach effervescence lived in her every cellular expression and she had spizzerinkton to spare. That is hilarious. That's, That's how I wrote age 12. That is how I wrote. I would sit down with the thesaurus and I would find the long word for every short. And I'm only just growing out of it, age 31. Well, I was about to say, I think if you were to ask the Sunday Times sub-editors, they would say that's what I do. Honestly. I wrote like I swallowed a thesaurus. That I do do that. It dry, I, like every time I write something, a sub-editor chops it I've all in half. I've got a thesaurus half. right here. I live by the thesaurus. We've I got, die by Why do we I live am, and die We are Sean Penn. We're Joey Tribbiani, baby kangaroo <laughs> Tribbiani. That's what we are. You would love this interview, doll. I'm going to send it, it to hilarious. you. Sounds hilarious. Lastly, I read one of the most brilliant and thoughtful and quite hard to read and understand at times pieces of journalism I've ever read, recommended to me by a Hilo listener. It's an article in the London Review of Books by Amir Srinivasan, written in March, titled Who Has the Right to Sex? big old topic that mm. it deals with lots of things from Elliot Rogers and the so-called incels to sex workers sexual desire homosexuality and racial fetishization I just want to read out two bits that I found really interesting the first deals with um, this whole idea of incels and um, men being rejected and how this whole idea is actually part of misogyny indeed part of the injustice of patriarchy, something unnoticed by incels and other men's rights activists, is the way it makes even supposedly unattractive categories of men attractive. Geeks, nerds, effete men, old men, men with dad bods. Meanwhile, there are sexy schoolgirls and sexy teachers, manic pixie dreamgirls and milfs, but they're all taut-bodied and hot, minor variations on the same normative paradigm. Can we imagine GQ carrying an article celebrating the mum bod? So funny, I've literally just written a piece on that. Have you? Yeah, it'll be in the news. On the mum bod? No, on the... It's about the double standard... I thought you'd been staring at me through the window. No, <laughs> it's... Um... <laughs> <laughs> it's uh we'll be in the new statesman next week it's on the double standard of vulnerability and how vulnerability in men is such a fetishized thing like the dad bod but oh, you would never show the mum bod the same courtesy absolutely and arguably she deserves more courtesy because she's got a mum bod for having a fucking mm. baby not mm. from like empathy, walking around being cute empathy eating <laughs> and another thing that i found really interesting is on sex work Third and fourth wave feminists are right to say, for example, that sex work is work and can be better work than the menial labour undertaken by most women. And they are right to say that what sex workers need are legal and material protections, safety and security, not rescue or rehabilitation. But to understand what sort of work sex work is, surely we have to say something about the political formation of male desire. Surely there will be similar things to say about other forms of women's work teaching, nursing, caring, mothering. To say that sex work is just work is to forget that all work, men's work, women's work, is never just work, it is also sexed. So regardless of what you think of sex work, I think that's a really interesting point to say, don't, don't dismiss the sexualization of the work because everything, ev every form of employment is sexed. And I think that's really interesting to see that within that framework that sounds like a monster of an article it's a monster of an article and it sounds um, brilliant i definitely will and read it's that. it's it's less of like it's less of an article and more of like a vital piece of life reading i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Support for the Hilo comes from Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From search to emails to maps and beyond, it has a history of challenging the norm and finding a better way. Each week, Pandora and I cast our eye over the news and look for someone, or in this week's case, something that has challenged the status quo. And this week's winner is the Resolution Foundation, a think tank that has proposed all 25-year-olds should receive a nest egg of £10,000. The Resolution Foundation says a citizen's inheritance should be created for all young people, no matter how rich they are, to go towards housing, paying back university tuition fees or caring costs. It says the giveaway would be paid for by abolishing inheritance tax and replacing it with a new system in which people start paying the tax at a far lower threshold. The plans also call for older workers who continue to work past their pension age to pay national insurance for the first time. I would have been pretty happy at age 25 if uh, this scheme was in place. Thank you to our sponsor Google for allowing us to indulge our curiosity always. It's now time for The Top Line, read by Dolly Hannah Alderton. Chuckle Brothers have dismissed rumours of a feud as utter rubbish. Paul Elliott, the younger of the brothers, aged 70, tweeted, The missus drives us both everywhere. If not, check with at Hull underscore trains and at Virgin trains when we are both regularly seen together. Phew. The BBC, ITV and Channel 4 are in early discussions to set up a British streaming service to rival Netflix after BBC figures released in March revealed that young people spend more time watching Netflix than all the BBC channels put together. London has been ranked as the best city in the world for university students. Although it ranked poorly on affordability, students also have access to the cultural life of museums, theatres, cinemas and restaurants. Previously, Montreal and Paris were in first place. Paying for petrol at the pump could stop people becoming obese. The advice comes from Oxford professor and public health advisor Susan Jebb, who believes that removing the sweeties by the till temptation could make a marked difference to our obesity problem. Legoland Windsor has unveiled a new miniature creation of Harry and Meghan's wedding at Windsor Castle. The whole scene took 11 model makers, 752 hours to build, and is made up of almost 60,000 Lego bricks. 11 students have been suspended from Warwick University after sending racist and anti-Semitic messages and a series of rape jokes in a Facebook group chat. Online student paper The Boar reports that 98 screenshots have been submitted as evidence. Three teenagers were shot over the bank holiday weekend in what has been described as a wave of violence. A 13-year-old was shot in the head in Harrow and a 15-year-old shot in Wealdstone were both later released from hospital. But 17-year-old Raheem Ainsworth-Barton, shot in Southwark on Saturday, sadly died. According to a global drug survey, cocaine can be delivered more quickly in England and Scotland than a pizza. Of 1,000 cocaine users in England and more than 500 in Scotland, more than a third said they could get the drug delivered within half an hour. A young Italian couple who died in the Grenfell Tower fire have become the subject of a fairy tale. Marco and Gloria moved to London to find work as architects. Only a few months later, they died in the Grenfell tragedy. Marco's family and friends have written a children's book turning what happened into a fairy tale, but unlike real life, the story has a happy ending. Jermaine Greer has called for all public toilets to be gender neutral, saying the current division into gents and ladies is outdated. Just dump the whole thing, she said. In our houses where we live, our toilets are not gendered. I think that should just be now universal. Greer made the comments during the Channel 4 programme Genderquake, the debate, which aired on Tuesday night. The programme featured the academic debate with a panel, including former Olympic athlete Caitlin Jenner. And that was the top line. That's interesting. Jermaine Greer adopting a sort of markedly different stance on trans rights to what she has yeah, been. Yeah, but, but I have to say, I, I haven't watched the programme and I will be watching it this week, but from, from what I gather, I don't I don't think that's on account of trans rights. I think it's more what she was saying, is I don't understand why defecation is conflated with something gendered. 
or, still or a pos- sexual. But still a positive outcome. The thinking yes, might it's... not have been... Um, there's some incredibly sad things in there. I mean, three teenagers being shot in different places over Bank Holiday Weekend is just appalling. You know, we like to think that we live in a safer country than that. Um, that's a beautiful story from the families of the Grenfell victims. Mm. Mm. And also, I just can't believe how long it takes to get a pizza. <laughs> talk about the Met Gala. Pop culture meets high society meets celebrity in its purest distillation. Hosted by Vogue's Anna Wintour, it's a ritzy costume ball held in New York every May and everyone's favourite visual feast. The pictures are always fantastic, that's a given. Anyone else remember Rihanna in a yellow dress which took Chinese designer Gao Pei two years to make and then got made into a pepperoni pizza meme? (laughs) But the theme is generally ignored in that it is mostly crowbarred into a plunging dress. This year, however, the theme was hotter than the guests and no, I don't work for E! Exclamation point. The theme for the gala was based on the Met head curator Andrew Bolton's exhibition Heavenly Bodies, which investigates the influence of Catholicism on fashion with never seen pieces before from the Vatican archive. The red carpet interpretation of this exhibition was camper than the Catholic Church at Christmas. I mean, you had Madonna, who in her own words has been excommunicated from the church three times and once dedicated like a virgin to the Pope at a concert in Rome, performing like a prayer whilst wearing a veil covered in jewelled rosaries. If that's not camp, I don't know what is. I just had an image of you working for E-Panda. E-exclamation point. And it was such a glorious thing. I just imagined you (laughs) on one of those red carpet commentary shows with an enormous microphone alongside RuPaul making sort of pithy observations about all the outfits. It was a visual feast, as you say, and it was also, I think, the most oblique and abstract theme for any Met Ball of my lifetime. Some of the outfits were nothing if not hilarious. You had Jared Leto as Jesus. God complex much, or rather, Jesus complex much. Blake Lively was in a gown so big that she had to get a party bus to the gala, which I love. (laughs) Hiring a party bus for your dress. Your friend Cardi B was there, Dolly. Patricia Lockwood, a comedian who wrote the best-selling memoir about her father, who was a priest, priest daddy, last year, said in a conversation with her mother published on The Cut, Cardi B is pregnant, which is the most Catholic thing so far. (laughs) Rihanna, this year's co-host, was wearing a version of the papal mitre, a beaded bishop's hat, and said it would be a sin not to wear this. Jaden Smith, for reasons no one can fathom, wore a sheepskin coat made by Louis Vuitton and brought along his own record as his date. I mean, if that's not narcissism, I don't know what is. (laughs) Katy Perry was the Archangel Gabriel, or just your basic angel if you're being bitchy. Grimes, who appeared with Elon Musk, wore a Tesla-branded choker. Hashtag spawn, hashtag ad. Some were genuinely insightful. Lena Waithe's rainbow cape spoke of the progress the church has made, but how much it has left to make when it comes to LGBTQ rights. Zendaya, who dressed up as Joan of Arc, a woman burnt alive by the church before being recognised as a saint, was particularly meaningful, I thought, to see a independently rich, successful, young black actor and activist dressed up as a saint, a role which is often culturally seen as white was really great I thought Dolly what were your faves I love the rainbow cape I also loved um Rihanna's Pope get up I think my favorite was Phoebe Waller-Bridge's uh Christopher Kane nude dress with an image from the book mm. uh the joy of sex on it with a marabou trim I actually Instagrammed that dress during the last fashion week because I loved it so much I'm quite surprised you haven't mentioned Frances McDormand in her turquoise Valentino oh, yeah, she cape. looked beautiful pulling just the most hilariously posy anyone else I've I said know. it once I've said it before she can get away with anything that woman as a lapsed Catholic, my mother always chides me when I say this. She says, you're a lazy Catholic, not a lapsed one. I didn't expect to feel offended by this, but I did a little bit. The most obvious point being, why is it okay to mine Catholicism in this really quite crass way, but not Islam or Judaism or Hinduism or Buddhism? One of our listeners, Francesca, wrote, I truly cannot imagine Rihanna similarly getting away with a Dalai Lama mini dress or Jared Leto sporting a tarlet without causing extreme backlash. In fact, the whole of Francesca's email was very insightful and informative. I'm going to read some more of it here. Look at Lana Del Rey waving her St. Lucy's eye stick, playing the hot martyr while erasing the saint's history of suffering from her travesty. The costumes were all geared towards a precise interpretation of Catholic devotion, naive and kitsch. 
Our celebs all imitated the tacky Madonnas hidden in street votive niches, not the sombre looking ones pictured in altarpieces. They reminded me of the plastic Madonna shaped bottles of holy water brought home from pilgrimages, prayer cards kept in wallets and next to entrance doors for protection. But it all makes sense in a way. Aren't these celebrities our patron saints? Those we turn to for comfort and inspiration when everyone or thing else has failed us. And don't we really believe that provided they could ever cry, they would shed tears of blood and pearls? Damn, that's a good payoff. I wish all my emails ended that powerfully. And also a really good comment on celebrity culture as a whole there. What, say, is the difference between donning a crucifix and a halo? The answer to Coachella's flower crown, wrote Osman Ahmed in a very good piece on vogue.co.uk, for the Met Gala and wearing a Native American headdress at Wilderness. I think it's really worth unpacking the idea of religious appropriation versus cultural appropriation and whether or not religious appropriation even exists. I have to say I didn't take offence, but I'm not Catholic. I'm trying to work out if I'd take offence if someone was wearing robes or something taken from another religion, like a skull cap or a hijab for a for a fashion party. And yes, I would. I think you're right. I would find that completely unacceptable. I think there are two main factors in why it might feel like Catholicism is fair game or at least more acceptable than another religion in this scenario. Firstly, the Catholic Church, as we know, has a terrible reputation of late. I mean, I say of late, but it's sort of for a really long time. The Sisters of Charity in Ireland, who ran the famous Magdalene Laundries, which forced unmarried pregnant young women to do manual labour for free to atone for their sins. The mass grave full of children's remains, found next to a former home run by the Bon Secours Sisters in County Galway. The myriad accusations of abuse by former students from Catholic public schools, including Ampleforth by the rejection of homosexual marriage, abortion, birth control. So, you know, when you put it in that framework, to mine it feels like fair game to many, a sort of riposte Mm. to the many um, ills that they have woven in society. The other reason I think it feels so much more acceptable than other religions, and this is something that Osman Ahmed points out in his essay for Vogue as well, is Catholicism feels Western, i.e. it feels white and privileged. As Andrew Bolton himself says of his exhibition at the Met, it is as much a culture, Catholicism, as it is a religion. It's not a prejudiced minority in the world in the same way that, I mean, this is a very crass um, comparison, but the Rohingya Muslims. It has also, hence Bolton's exhibition, had a huge influence on creativity in the world. I mean, the Vatican is one of the most stunningly beautiful places I've ever been to in the world. And Catholicism is an ancient religion steeped in iconography. So whilst I was really unsettled to see some of these fucking ludicrous outfits, mm. like I, I can see why... For a gala that does want to push those boundaries between creativity and religion mm. and art, that, that it that it did perhaps do that. I think that first point as well is very valid. I think historically the Catholic Church has been such an oppressive and controlling force in so many ways, as you say, that I think a very long time ago when Catholicism would have been such a part of the ancient zeitgeist Mm. to deal with and understand and make light of the power that it had over people, it would have been with mockery. And that's probably just been passed down as a part of comedy and a part of culture without questioning for hundreds of years. You can see it in everything from Shakespeare's plays to the fact that like like, tarts and vicars is such a like (laughs) mad traditional theme for a British fancy dress party. In fact, I've just realised the Met Ball is basically just a Tarts and Vickers party. Just need Bridget Jones with a little bobtail. <laughs> we did a call out, for want of a better word, on various forms of social media. And we heard back from a lot of people, and I've also heard from a lot of people, you know, personally, who practice the Catholic faith, who did find the gala's theme offensive. People who wear their crucifix for meaningful reasons rather than as a sexy ornament to tickle their cleavage with for one night only at the Met actually reminds me a bit of Sarah Michelle Geller and Cruel Intentions. Didn't she store her cocaine in a mm. crucifix around the net? But a message that particularly interested me that we received was from someone who worked for the Catholic Church in New Zealand. And she felt, from an insider's point of view, like the church was using the Met Gala as good PR. Um, and she thought that was quite inappropriate. I thought that was very interesting. Jessica, an Irish Catholic, agreed. She felt like this glittering spectacle, quote-unquote, ignored the oppression of the church, which is obviously at fever pitch right now in Ireland with the abortion referendum coming up on May the 25th. 
In light of the Me Too global movement and the repeal the Eighth Amendment movement in Ireland, she writes, it felt distasteful. I am an Irish Catholic and cannot receive fertility treatment on the Irish public healthcare system. My brother will never marry his partner in a Catholic church, his own religion, despite now being able to legally do so with ease. If I fell pregnant with a sick baby or was ill myself, I would have to travel to terminate my pregnancy. As always in these cases, and important to state because offence is not one size fits all, not everyone was offended. Hannah, a practising Christian and fourth year religious studies student at Edinburgh, thought the gala was a positive celebration of religion and art. She says, Whilst verging on sacrilege by making material religion separate from its divine roots, I actually think it wasn't as bad as some might think. There is such a beautiful richness in religious art that is often overlooked, and this really paid homage to and showed interest in it, which is really quite exciting. Having written about the mix of religion and art in my dissertation, I personally think more attention needs to be paid to it. And that comes back to my point about how incredibly beautiful and rich the iconography yeah. of, of ancient religions can be. Of course you could always do a Kate Moss. She ignored the theme entirely and turned up in a black YSL mini dress. So the next time you face a controversial theme and you don't fancy being the tart or the vicar, just think to yourself, WWMD. What would Mossy do? Amen to that. <laughs> Support for the Hilo comes from the ultimate bubbly Moet and Shandon. With the weather being El Scorchio, there is no better drink than Moet Ice. But what is Moet Ice, you might ask? It's a champagne to be enjoyed over three ice cubes, perfect for barbecues or summer soirees. I'm thrilled about this, as whenever faced with a warm glass of champagne, okay, sometimes Prosecco, <laughs> I'm dying to be a Philistine and put it on ice. Now Moet have done all the work for us and removed any notions of Philistinery. All I need is a plane ticket to Mykonos or Ibiza to enjoy it as the Europeans do, or you can find it on rooftops across London. Moet Ice Imperial is the first ever champagne created to be enjoyed over ice. It is created slightly sweeter, meaning that the taste does not dilute when the ice melts. It is fun and fresh, much like me. <laughs> Moet Ice was crafted by cellar master Benoit Guez. Taking his inspiration from the classic piscine cocktail, Guez launched a trend by creating a champagne which actually tastes better on the rocks. So, if you're going to splurge on a bottle of champagne with friends, may we suggest, as we fan ourselves through another heatwave, that you make it an icy one. Top tip, don't forget to serve it in a large wine glass to allow the champagne to breathe. Thank you very much to Moet. In 2015, a totally perplexing story broke concerning a 37-year-old American woman called Rachel Dolezal. I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but here's a quick recap. A woman who'd been president of a Washington chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, a professor of African studies who ostensibly had been both posing and self-identifying as a black woman, was revealed to in fact be white. The story sparked a conversation around whether or not we can cross over to become the race we were not born as. The resounding answer seemed to be no, no, you can't. She was dismissed from both of her posts as an activist and a professor. Now, Rachel Dolezal, who has never been too far out of the public eye since her fraudulence was revealed, is the subject of a new Netflix documentary, The Rachel Divide, which follows her day-to-day -day life now, as well as her history, and how and why this self-identification and deception happened. Pandora, I'm interested, do you think there was any need for this programme to be made? Was it irresponsible of Netflix to give this woman long, focused and dedicated airtime? Someone tweeted me saying that very thing when I mentioned we were going to be discussing this documentary on the high low, you know, why are you giving her more airtime? And I found that really interesting in that I always find that argument as baffling as I do pointless. Imagine if we applied that to every controversial character or news story in the world. Trump, Kim Jong-un, obviously I'm being a bit facetious here, they are world leaders, not fraudulent former professors. But I am always drawn, like many journalists and indeed humans, to characters like mm -hmm. Rachel. I am similarly enchanced by Belle Gibson, who lied about having cancer, lied about her healthy diet curing her cancer, and wrote an entire book, The Whole Pantry, published by Penguin, about that lie before the truth was uncovered. I'm fascinated by Essena O'Neill, Katie Hopkins, Imelda Marcos, and in short, 
a lot of women and men who technically shouldn't receive any more airtime. But setting that aside, yes, I think it was an interesting documentary to have been made. I think there was a story to be told, not necessarily the story we thought mm. would be told mm. when it comes to Rachel Dolezal. I'm in two minds about it. I think on one hand, it, as you say, it is a very unusual case and therefore it is interesting. And I was also curious about how she got there. It would be too easy to deem her as just fundamentally a bad person who did a terrible, irredeemable, inexplicable thing. Through the course of the film, I learnt she is definitely self-absorbed and phenomenally arrogant and her actions are deeply offensive, but she's also incredibly damaged. But that said, I, I do understand that you reserve the right to be so offended by Rachel Dolezal that it does bleed a complete incuriosity about who she is or what her story is. I went through so many emotions watching the film, actually. At first, I found her delusional, clearly. Watching on some of the news segments was hugely frustrating. Then I felt hugely empathetic when it was revealed that she grew up in an abusive home and that her assumed black identity was essentially a shield. When she read out the Twitter abuse she got after sharing a picture of her third newborn son... I'll cheer him up by slapping my unprotected dick on his cheek was one of the tweets. I actually cried. But then I grew frustrated. Why was she still on social media? It's a question posed in the documentary. And her response, it's the only thing I have control over, doesn't say anything at all. And then when I went onto her Instagram with my heart in my mouth, I was disappointed to see that she clearly deletes all the negative comments. There were hundreds in place from people, some of whom were black, saying they had no problem at all with her identifying as black, which is quite interesting in itself as it comes back to the idea that we talked about earlier that not everyone is offended by the same thing but it's also very monolithic and completely untrue because she's deleting all the negative mm, commentary mm. so it's unlikely to be representative of how many people feel so honestly I went on a real journey I felt all the feels with this mm. I think my main issue with the film and also just generally with the conversations around Rachel Dolezal full stop is the fact we have made the mistake of trying to hook it onto any kind of wider movement or an insight into race or racial issues at this moment in time. Transracialism is just not a thing. Her book sold about 500 copies. There have been next to no one come forward to say that this is something they too have experienced. When you understand Rachel Dolezal's story, what you understand is this is a woman who had a hugely traumatic childhood and you know, without putting my amateur Freud hat on, in my opinion, is in a state of post-trauma. She was raised in a very religious, very strict family who couldn't be more recognisably white, both in a, a physical and in a cultural sense. Her parents adopted black children whom they beat, senseless. Both the adopted daughter and Rachel accused Rachel's biological brother of sexual abuse. Rachel, as soon as she could, adopted her black siblings as her own children and then went on to self-identify as black. For me, it's really simple. She wanted to get as far away from her family and therefore her heritage as possible. And that's how this whole thing manifested. Of course, appropriating a race is not a way of healing any emotional wounds or fixing a crisis of identity. But for me, watching that film, that was the most obvious explanation. And to make it something more significant or universal than that would be a mistake. I agree that why she did it, when you watch the documentary, is startlingly simple. To paraphrase something she says in the documentary, how we cope and how we release. So to an adolescent Rachel, whose eldest son is now her adopted brother, through her familial experience, whiteness was associated with bad and blackness with good. So she decided to align herself with goodness and assume a new race because, in her own words, race is a state of mind. That is how she copes. That is how she releases. Transracialism is a damaging non-concept, but Rachel is clearly mm. damaged. Mm. So as her adopted sister Esther says, Rachel choosing her identity was a way of disassociation. She isn't the first person to have assumed a black identity as a non-black person. She's been called a modern Miss Anne by NBC News, which is a name for a white woman who thinks she knows all about the black experience. And there's a really interesting New York Times article from 2013, which explains and investigates the historic Miss Anne figure. And it's very interesting. I will link it in the show notes. A recurring theme throughout the film and throughout the commentary surrounding Rachel has been the fact that you can't 
borrow the sort of fun bits of black identity and bypass persecution. We're just going to play a clip from the documentary here from when Rachel goes on the US talk show The Real and is quizzed by the show's hosts about racial identity. Let me tell you something, I'm black. I can't be you. I can't reverse myself. Right. I, let me tell you, Rachel, if the police got the me, the police got me, you, you, could th- you could throw that off and show that little like, nice fine hair up under and you might get away. I may not. I may not even make it in the jail. Yeah. Rachel, I think it's kind of hard because you're not black. You weren't born black. So when you say you are black, it makes it hard for people to understand where you're coming from. Right, and that's why I said I, I acknowledge I'm, yes. I was biologically born white to right. white parents. To quote the documentary, you can't appropriate persecution because it's cool. This reminds me of something that Aminatu So said, which we recently discussed on the podcast, which is that you cannot claim black affiliation to signify wokeness. Now, Rachel isn't trying to be woke in a kind of hip, liberal way, um, but she is by far her happiest during the entire documentary when she is at the Black Lives Matter rally. That isn't a sin in itself, but she is performing blackness in the same way that people assume an affiliation in order to benefit, as Dolly says, cherry pick the good parts. For me, that's always been the most uncomfortable thing about this supposed transracialism, that it is appropriating pain for one's own personal sense of self or well-being. But interestingly, in a very brilliant New Yorker review of the film by Doreen St. Felix, she found the recurring focus on this particular aspect to be very galling. To quote her, she said, I grew irritated by the film's montages of pundits saying that their identity was represented by pain and this was the reason that Dolajal could not be black, which seemed obliquely to promote the maudlin state of the colloquial definition of blackness. She then goes on to talk about the segment that we've just played from The Real. And something she seems to have found a telling moment was when Lonely Love says to Rachel Dolezal, I'm black, I can't be you, I can't reverse myself. I found that a very telling moment too. Not so much how offensive it is to mimic or play act a difficult experience, but how unequal and imbalanced it is that if transracialism ever did exist, that this is only a traversing that white people could do into blackness. It is white privilege exemplified. That New Yorker piece by Doreen Felix was actually the most interesting piece of commentary I read on the Rachel Divide because, as you say, she raises um, really interesting discussions around pain. I like the way she's like, can we stop focusing on how it's all about pain? You know, it, that's not the point. The point for Doreen is not that she's stealing the pain. It's It's that transracialism doesn't exist and let you know let's not be maudlin about Mm. this it's not only a race based on pain there are obviously ways to celebrate the race as well so she's sort of saying you know let's not be negative about it but also if it was about pain then Rachel has gone through a tremendous amount of personal pain in her upbringing which is truly horrific but it is a very different type of pain to what is being uh, referred to in black culture but I I like that Doreen is setting this in a framework. It's not all about pain. It's not, we have suffered pain and she has suffered no pain because neither of those statements are true. And that's not what this is all about. What, as you say, is is the most powerful takeaway is, is the white privilege being exemplified that a white person is thinking she can become black, but where is where is the documentary on a black person thinking that they can become white? It has only been made because she is white. Dolly and I rung up Charlie Brinkhurst Cuff, the Galdem and Dazed editor and columnist at the iPaper, whose writing we are a big fan of, to hear her thoughts on the documentary. I don't think anyone would have really had a problem with Rachel Dolezal if she hadn't gone out of her way to make herself into this public figure. I obviously don't think she's black. I don't believe in the idea of sort of transracialism or I don't even think it's something that we should really be discussing at this stage. It's just not something that I really want to entertain as a black person. It's a completely different thing. You cannot conflate gender and race. They're arguably both social constructs, but the way they have been constructed is totally and, and utterly different. It's rare that you would meet a black person who would think that, that their understanding of their race is the same as sort of um, being transgender. Um, 
the thing is about Rachel as well that's interesting is the fact that she's she's getting hate from from both communities now and it's not that it's not warranted but obviously like I don't agree with like anyone being sort of abused on social media I can understand why black people are upset but then she also has the white supremacist as well because of her affiliation with the black community it must just be a, a mad place to be in but anyway as in terms of like I've been on the receiving end of being doxxed by a lot of people who, who do not like me because of the of what I stand for because of my identity and it's really not a nice place to sit and yet she continues to have these very open social media accounts and and continues to post on them and I just think that's bizarre it's absolutely bizarre the most tragic bit about it is the fact that she's bringing up two young black men and, and making their, their lives really, really hard in the present, excusing obviously like her traumas, which are, which are awful as well. But moving forward, that is the most tragic thing about it for me. She has really co-opted the sort of race dialogue that should be moving forward and, and dragged it quite a few places backwards and I think that's a real real shame. Thank you so much to Charlie for speaking with us it was really interesting to hear her thoughts as ever all the articles we've referenced are in the show notes and if you want to watch The Rachel Divide it's currently available on Netflix. It's now time for Ask the Hilo. Dear Dolly and Pandora I'm 18 and I have this big ugly monster looking at me called A-Level. I want to hit it, but I have to refrain from doing so because I know it will eat me if I try. However, I have one tiny little question. How do you do them? I'm studying French, Spanish and chemistry and I'm hoping to study French and Russian. Don't even go there. I don't know why I chose Russian either. At the (laughs) University of Edinburgh. I'd love to know how you didn't die in the process of studying for and carrying out your A-levels. Love, Maggie. Oh, Maggie, I want to give you a big old hug. I thought it was really important to include this because I think you probably have a lot of listeners who are going through this right now. Honestly, Maggie, I hope this makes you feel better. I have never worked as hard in my life and I've worked pretty fucking hard as I have for my GCSEs and my A-level ever. I've never been more stressed by an exam. I've never found something harder than I did. So if you're like, oh my God, is this the rest of adulthood? It's not because hopefully you'll go on to do something that you really love that won't involve, you know, reams of painful and pointless exams um so see this as a means to an end and i think kudos to you for studying french and russian it's bloody great that you're going to know some um languages dolly and i are like hello hello that's us abroad (laughs) do you know i've all i was going to say is exactly what you've just said i i hope this doesn't um feel like an overwhelming thing to hear but it is really hard and like pandora my gcse's in particular but my a levels as well were the thing I've worked absolutely hardest for. They took over my brain the most. I found them the most stressful. Uh, They took over my life the most. I'd never crammed so much. I'd never studied so hard. But I'm saying that to you just so you know that it's never gonna be as difficult as it is right now. For me personally, I think it's the hardest like you I've ever worked. So I'm saying this just so you know that you just have to do it for a couple more months and then you're out the other side and you never have to do that again. And don't worry if you don't do really brilliantly in them. Much to my dismay, because it's probably one of the most impressive things about me, and yes, that says a lot about me, no one ever asks my GCSE or my A-level results. (laughs) And my husband, who got really quite crap A-level results, got a first from university. So really, it does not really shape that much, I don't think. I'm sure that your UCAS guidance counsellor person would say that I'm speaking rubbish, but really, they are not the end of the world. So do your best. That's all you can do. All the other cliches insert there. You've got the rest of your life to look forward to and I'm so excited for you. And eat uh, bowls of Alpen. That got me through it. And I listen to Magic FM. That's <laughs> good my luck, top Maggie. tips. Good luck. And good luck to all our listeners who have exams coming up this summer. Thank you so much for listening to episode 54 of The Hilo. You can email us, show at gmail.com or tweet us at show. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.